and if we consider not only the individuals who will struggle with an addiction, but also how it impacts family and friends, we can start to get a pulse of how far-reaching addiction is in a country like ours. And the BBC recently did a great broadcast on the science of addiction, and they brought in researchers and scientists from King's College and from the Institute of Psychology, Psychiatry and Neuroscience, as well as from Liverpool University. And these researchers um, pointed out that addiction is not a diagnosis. The DSM-5 also um, does not consider addiction a diagnosis, but rather it's a, a general umbrella term. And these researchers um, that were interviewed on the BBC defined addiction as a desire that goes beyond one's self-control and starts to interfere with the ability to carry out everyday life activities, such as getting in the way of relationships, getting in the way of activities and responsibilities, inhibiting your job, that sort of thing. And also these researchers were pointing out that the research they were doing into the science of addiction was to hopefully be able to have some data to form some therapeutic interventions to help with the recovery process. And so one area that these specific researchers were looking at were how various addictions affect one physiologically. You know, would a substance addiction affect one physiologically as maybe an activity addiction like gambling? They were trying to understand um, would it produce the same physiological withdrawals in us? And what they realized, what they discovered was um, not even all substances, not even all chemical addictions cause the same physiological withdrawals or even cause physio physiological withdrawals at all. So there's um, alcohol and opioids. Those will cause sort of the classic physiological withdrawals we think of. So for example, if someone's starting, trying to detox from alcohol, they will likely go through seizures if they've been addicted to alcohol for a substantive amount of time. And those seizures obviously need to be addressed and navigated in the recovery process. But other substances, even substances like cocaine and nicotine, don't cause physiological withdrawals. Um, but they do, however, cause very strong psychological withdrawals. So cravings and longings that are triggered from environmental factors and experiences. And it can be a little harder to overcome addictions like that because the withdrawals are a little more covert. You know, you can wonder and wrestle, why am I experiencing these cravings and longings again? Whereas if you're having a seizure, you're probably not going to be so hard on yourself and wonder, why can't I just get over this? And again, these researchers were doing this research to hopefully you know, be able to form some therapeutic interventions. Right now, the data just isn't there to do that. But that doesn't mean that people aren't recovering from addictions today. In fact, many people are, and that's thanks to a lot of good therapy and treatment. And since the 80s into the 90s, there's really been a greater move to consider and address the underlying issues that contribute to addictions. So for example, recovery and therapy efforts might consider, is the substance addiction or the activity addiction the core issue, or is maybe trauma or a mental health diagnosis like a bipolar disorder? 
Or is it a maladaptive coping mechanism to grief or loss? <clears throat> and there's also been a move among therapists to no longer approach, excuse me, <clears throat> to no longer approach substance abuse addiction and recovery as just an individual issue. Increasingly, they're realizing that addictions um, are connected to family dynamics and integrated into aspects of addictions are also the family's mistrust of maybe the addict. So it sort of goes both ways. Family dynamics will play into addictions as a person struggling with addictions causes mistrust, hurts relationships. That can be a cyclical effect in the recovery process. So they're also seeing um, the approach to recovery more holistically and less individualistically. But I think because recovery has been going on for quite a while and, and doing well, you know, you can find plenty of great books and podcasts, support groups on um, recovery. I listened to one podcast that just generally listed helpful tips, like change your mindset, set small patterns or goals, uh, start loving yourself, replace old habits with new ones, celebrate your accomplishments and yourself. Seek personal and professional help when necessary. And you know, all of these are good. None of these are bad advice. They're not gonna get you off track as you're trying to seek um, recovery. However, they might be a little bit simplistic, a little bit reductionist, because they don't really tell you, well, how do I change my mindset? How do I set new goals? And in that, it might give you an, a sort of an approach to addiction with just a white knuckling um, idea. And that's the idea of what the passage that Lawrence read today in Romans addresses. We studied Romans last fall. I'm sure many of you remember that. And Romans is really written to a church that is divided and fractured. In one camp, we have the religious elite, the Jewish Christians who have the Old Testament and the law as heritage and lifestyle, but they're ostracized from Roman society, from participating and living and navigating in social activities. And then in the other camp in the church, we have the Gentile believer who was not raised or living under the Jewish law, but is more privileged in society and has social clout. And all the great, heavy theological treaties that we see in Romans are really all written to unite the two camps, to unite the church in Rome. In the first few chapters, Paul demonstrates how we are all deserving of God's wrath and that the only hope one has for righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to make clear that God's plan from the very beginning of humanity for justification was through faith. He uses Abraham as an example. And that now through faith in Jesus Christ, we can join the triune gods in the mission of putting sin to death, both, both individually, corporately, and even missionally. And then we come to chapter 7 and 8, where we had the passage today. And chapter 7 and 8 are a bit of a seam or a hinge in the book of Romans. But by the end of chapter 7, we see Paul describing a struggle, which I think every Christian has or will experience in their life, whether you're struggling with addictions or not. For the believer who is in Christ, the sinful nature has died. 
but the body of flesh is not going to be fully restored until Christ's return. And there's a struggle between the new nature in the believer and the body of flesh with its potential desire to sin. And Paul describes the struggle of not doing the good that he desires to do and yet committing the evil that he doesn't want to do. And he makes it clear, though, that he has the new nature because he says he delights in the law of God in his innermost being, in who he really is. But he's also keenly aware that the sin in his flesh is still waging a war in his bodily members. But Paul is clear that he is not the sinful behavior. He is not the sinful activity. His identity is not the sin because he states in verse 17 of chapter 7 and again in, chap- in verse 20 of chapter 7, he says things like, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. And then Paul concludes in chapter 7 with a question that's full of frustration and confusion and pain which he has obviously felt and worked through, and I think many of us feel and continue to work through. Paul says, wretched human that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Um, And I think it's worth pausing here at this question and just reflecting. If we've ever struggled to overcome a sinful habit, to overcome any type of addiction, to overcome the generational or family sins that we were raised in, groomed in, inherited. We identify with the frustration of this question. Who will deliver me? How am I ever going to get over this? And we, like Paul, probably have wondered sentiments like this and felt, I don't want this, but I feel unable to change myself. And you're right. You are unable to change yourself. In the 1830s, there was an aspiring French politician, Alix de Tocqueville, who came to America to learn and study our penal system. He wrote a famous book, Democracy in America. Um, And he pointed out great examples of equality in America as well as discrepancies. But he pointed out an observation that Americans were characterized by believing that prosperity would satisfy one's yearning for happiness. He wrote, a strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. De Tocqueville also believed and wrote that the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the heart. And his words have been a good lesson, not only for Europeans to understand America, but for Americans to understand America. And I don't think that this American belief that prosperity will satisfy one's yearning for happiness has really changed since the 1830s. In fact, I would submit it's only increased as our abundance has increased. Romans points out that sin in us corrupts desires. When we hold a desire as fundamental to our being, as core to ensure happiness, the desire becomes corrupted. As as de Tocqueville said, a strange haunting melancholy 
deriving from incomplete joys which can never truly satisfy. When we demand a desire or expect it to fulfill us at the core of our being, we live with a bottomless, insatiable desire to have life on our terms. We put ourselves and our desires in place of God. Various addictions we normally encounter, addictions to porn, food, drugs, alcohol, nicotine, gambling, cutting, theft, weight loss, the internet, they're all actually surface expressions of a worship disorder. They're manifestations of a deep idol that we look to to satisfy, such as the desire for success, the desire for prosperity, the desire for respect or acceptance, the desire for comfort, for rest, for love or admiration, maybe from a specific person or specific people. And I'm not saying that there aren't biological and psychological factors that go into overcoming addictions, but I am saying there are also significant spiritual factors in overcoming addiction. If you've ever struggled with a substance or behavioral addiction, you know that someone telling you to stop it doesn't help you to be able to stop. As a result of the fall, when humans first chose their own free choice over God's instructions, over God's wisdom, over God, the curse of sin is now at work in the world and in ourselves and in others. Sin has cursed our world and unraveled the way things ought to be. One of the main consequences of this is that our worship of God is distorted because we've replaced him with our insatiable, corrupted desires. We were created to worship God, to be in community, to be in communal relationship with him. And as humans, we're always worshiping something because that's what we were created for. It's not something you can turn off. To turn it off would mean you would cease to be human. So you can't turn it off, but you can redirect it. And since the fall, we will worship other things as if they're God. We'll worship other people. We'll worship drugs. We'll worship sex. We'll worship gambling, escapism, acceptance, comfort, truth. Theology, not worshiping God, worshiping the study of God. We'll worship politics, religion. We'll even worship ourselves. And then we'll be shocked or worse when the world isn't revolving around us. And in our worship of other things, we're expecting something other than God to make our life good and right and fulfilling. Even more, we'll sacrifice for these false gods. We'll sacrifice our time, our money our bodies, our health, our mental health, kids, our relationships, our marriages, for these false gods. And when we sacrifice for these false gods because they are not the true God who loves us and created us, rather than receiving good, we're left robbed, destroyed, and enslaved. 
But as an old Scottish Puritan preacher, Thomas Chalmers, once said, we worship our way into our messes, and by God's grace, we will worship our way out. The only way to get out from under the control of an old affection is by the explosive power of a new affection. We need to worship God and his sovereignty on his terms. God's deliverance for humankind is not a single short-lived little act, but it's an enduring movement away from sin and slavery and into increasing freedom and deliverance in Christ. In God's deliverance, we are redeemed. Redemption is about restoration and recovering of the original. It's a return to the world, to all of creation, to, as God intended it to be. And in redemption, Christ restores you and I to our original position, to image and worship him. And if we expect God's deliverance to be mainly about our comfort, momentary comforts, we're going to be disappointed. Hear this clearly. Healing is painful. Expect it. Pulling out the hook of false idols and corrupted desires can be very painful. Recovery is painful, but in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hard, Jesus can bring us comfort and victory. Because as we press on setting our mind on the spirit and surrendering to his power and his control of our life, as it says in the redemption book, because Jesus faced the worst, you and I will never have to. We can face seeming or certain death, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, even physically, knowing we will not be put to shame, thanks to the work Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection. God has delivered. Like Jesus, our hope in God must extend beyond the desire for relief from present suffering to a deeper, ultimate relief. And while it's not wrong to ask God to change our circumstances, our hope must remain in him, whether he changes them or not. As we cry out to God, depending on him, he becomes our refuge and our hiding place for comfort and relief. And personally, I can say the more I seek God as my ultimate relief and safety, I find the bolder I am actually to ask him to change my circumstances and situations because my hope and my confidence is not in these temporary circumstances and situations, but my hope and boldness is attached to God's character and knowing that he is indeed a sure refuge. Many times we start with faith. We surrender to God by faith in Jesus Christ. But then we try to continue our journey with religion, with our own efforts. Religion really is just our efforts to be righteous, relying on our efforts for a sense of righteousness, for a sense, for an identity of righteousness. Our self-righteous efforts can look like disciplined acts. I'm never going to miss a church service. I'm never going to miss morning devotions. I'm going to fast. Our self-righteous efforts might look like putting others down 
Because when I put them down, I have that feeling of superiority, and that gives me a feeling of rightness. Or our efforts for self-righteousness might look like some form of repayment, trying to pay God back as if we could ever do that for the favors he's given us. So maybe we compulsively volunteer for service projects or meal signups, not out of love or an overflow of gratitude, but to overcome some guilt or nagging feeling that we're not quite good, that we're not quite qualified. Tim Keller uses a great chart in his book, Shaped by the Gospel, to compare religion versus the gospel. And he states that religion says things like, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. While the gospel says things like, I'm accepted, that's why I obey. Religion will say things like, my motivation is based on fear and insecurity, while someone who's rooted in the gospel will understand the motivation is an overflow out of gratitude. Religion will seek to obey God to get things from God, while the gospel encourages us to seek God to get more of God, to delight and resemble him more. And finally, religion says things like, When circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself because I believe it depends on me or that I deserve something for my goodness from God. Whereas the gospel would say, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus Christ and that while he may be allowing this for my training, he will exercise his love during this trial. Continuing on in faith is what this passage in Romans is about. Paul's climatic, frustrating question of who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death is answered with the praise, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, which is death by dying for us, and then he actually overcame that requirement by resurrecting from the dead. So that means for us, we, you and I, are now freed from the law of sin with its righteous requirements, death. We are freed from that, and we are empowered by the resurrection through the indwelling spirit. By faith, we know that we will increasingly overcome the struggles in our mortal bodies, but that ultimately all of our struggles, all of creation's corruption, will be fully restored when Christ returns. That is the hope we keep before us as we walk, sometimes falling down, but always getting back up in faith because of the now and future hope we have our minds set on. And what this ultimately does for us is it frees us from that enslaving, entangling cycle of guilt and shame. When we're honest, we know we have legitimate guilt and shame for the wrongs and the failures and the sins we've done. We're shamed because we've experienced how our wrongs have brought death and suffering to ourselves, to others, to those we love. And if we just look at the requirements of the law, we are going to be overtaken because we understand full well 
that we're helpless to change ourselves. And that realization, just in and of itself, could lead us to spiraling down into despair and self-deprivation even more. But because we place our faith, because we're in an agreement, because we choose to say it is true that Christ took on human flesh, he lived a perfect sinless life and paid for the corruption of humankind and all of creation by his death and resurrection, we have a new nature that is free from condemnation, the law of sin, that entangling guilt and shame. We're freed from that enslavement and we're empowered by the Spirit. So what would look different in your life if you operated in that freedom that you are not condemned? What would look different in our house churches if we operated in that freedom? What would look different in our local church if we operated in that freedom that we are not condemned, but we are set free to walk by the Spirit? When we consent, when we agree in faith that we're not condemned, when we consent that Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is sufficient to overcome, we walk by the Spirit. And then we can start to overcome lies and misconceptions. We can overcome the lie and misconception that there's a fundamental difference between the believer who's struggling to overcome an addiction and the believer who maybe will never struggle to overcome an addiction. All of us, both groups, struggle to not let corrupted desires take control. The struggles may be different in details, but fundamentally, they're the same. In fact, those that are not prone to addictions who struggle with desires that probably will never cause physical harm or injury to anyone, they have the luxury of being able to continue indefinitely in this superficial mode of operation in life, even in the church. But those who struggle with addictions don't have that luxury. At some point, they can no longer continue in life with this superficial mode of operation. And that is a blessing. If you struggle with addictions and you tend to think of yourself as different because of it, or you've never struggled with addictions and you tend to think of those who do as different, you need to confront that head on. Not only should we not let those differences and details of our struggles to divide us, they really should bring us together to edify us in, ma in maturing and unity. When we're really confident that we are not condemned, that we are freed from guilt and shame, we no longer need to hide our sins. We no longer need to justify our sins. We no longer need to blame others for our sins. We no longer need to excuse our sins due to the sins done to, to us. When we're really confident that we're not condemned but free to walk by the Spirit, we can confess our sins. We can bring it to the light because we're confident and secure in Christ. 
We seek restitution for our sins because we're confident and secure in Christ. We're humble and we're teachable. We listen because we're confident and secure in Christ. For the believer who may struggle with addictive behavior, that means you don't put on a false face or hide the struggles you're really going through. And for the believer who isn't prone to addictive behaviors, you're likewise vulnerable, and you share your struggles rather than operating under this superficial facade. Chapter 8 goes on to discuss how not only are we as individuals restored to our original position through Christ's work, but all of creation is moving towards complete restoration and glorification. And as we realize increasingly that redemption is not only about our own salvation and sanctification, but it's also about a much larger creation-wide epic movement of glory and beauty, our confidence and security again in Christ's sufficient work increases. And as we deepen in these understandings of Christ's sufficiency in community, it is extremely unifying. Then we can better support one another. We can carry each other's burdens. We can bring sin to light honestly and pray for one another because we're confident for ourselves and for one another that if Christ can raise from the dead, he can help us all overcome as he restores and redeems not only ourselves, but all of creation back to its original beauty and glory and position. In community, we worship God. And we're not only empowered by the Spirit to overcome those insatiable desires, but we also take up good works. And the last thing I want to comment on is just about the church being family. We can, as a church, stay united in the gospel, as some of us struggle with addictions and others of us never will. I think it's tempting to believe that conversations about mental health or addictions are really reserved for conversations with professionals, with a counselor or therapist. But one of God's plans and purposes for the church is for the church to be his family, where we're united to him and one another through Jesus Christ and his love. In being family, relationships are going to be messy. We're not always going to have the words to express our struggles and addictions. We may not have experienced the same temptations of chemicals or other addictions as others have, but as we just saw in the Psalms that we just finished, there is still healing in talking, talking as family, the family of God. When we talk as a church family, not because we're going to do it perfectly, but because we're committed to one another in Jesus Christ, we can demonstrate that we care by asking genuine and caring questions, even if the questions are too direct or kind of awkward. And, you know, we can be humble and preface it with, like, I'm not sure if I'm saying this the right way. And if someone asks you a question that's a little too direct or a little too awkward, instead of using it as an excuse to stop being in relationship with that person, use it as a reason to invest more in that person and how, understanding how to communicate and be in family with them better. In other words, for those who have a little bit more Midwestern tendencies, 
I'm encouraging you to talk more. I believe God is empowering us to talk more as family, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And just consider that a person who has been struggling with an addiction for any period of time has likely burned many of their relationships and been burned in many relationships. What they need is probably family. And when we as believers act like brothers or sisters in the Lord by loving one another, praying for one another, getting to know one another, speaking the truth in love, and doing life together, we are acting as the church that we are called and empowered to be. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do just come together collectively to acknowledge your supremacy, your providence, your control over all things. Um, like we sang earlier, who has given counsel to the Lord? Who understands how all things are put together? Lord, you've written your word to us so that we can just begin to scratch the surface of understanding who you are, who we are, who we are together in you. And it's all because of your glory and beauty. And you share us, share your glory and beauty with us. You sweep us into your glory and beauty as well. And we are eternally grateful for that. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to overcome these barriers, to overcome these insatiable desires, to be united as your family, to further bring your glory and beauty here and now. But our confidence is that your work is sufficient and you will continue to complete it. We trust that and we look forward to that day. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.